The wait is over. Millennial Kingdom plus Mud Flood is here. At over 450 pages, my latest book is jam-packed with information, including a large swath of scripture, all of which details the redemptive promises of his story. The Millennial Kingdom of Messiah happened precisely on schedule. You can purchase your own copy at Amazon.com or Sacred Word Publishing. Please do me a favor and drop in a review. I appreciate your support. Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. My name is Noel. This is the Diaspora of Yasharel. I think we're on episode 26 now. This is kind of a different week because, well, I have some bad news for you, and that is that you're stuck with me tonight. It's just me. Michael is not here. We're not, we're not doing our Aramaic Targum series, which we just started last week. Uh, I think I can give this away that he has, he and Stephanie have bought property in, we'll just say another state. Um, and they are moving this weekend. So once again, it's just me and I'm going to try to hold up the fort, but that's okay because this is my website anyway. So I have dropped in here a file called the 7,000 year timeline deception. I would encourage everybody to pull this up and follow along. Now we've been over this a couple times already. I initially released this half a year ago now, six, seven months ago. And then about a month ago, I went over some new additions while well, I've added a little bit more. And this is kind of exciting tonight because what I added, I will also be talking about later on when we go through first comment. So I didn't, I didn't plan this out. I, I hate to say this, but if everybody could turn to page 33, no, that is not me signifying anything. It just so happened to be page 33. I couldn't believe that before the presentation. I was opening this PDF. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Of all the, the numbers, it has to be this one. Well, this is called the 500 Years of the Phoenix. I feel like I need to review a little bit because the pages beforehand, page 32, 31, 30, 29, going back, is, what is it called? I'm scrolling there now. Uh, it is called anticipation of the church fathers and this is where a lot of people are asking me they'll say no a lot of your research on the millennial kingdom it makes sense but why in the world are you choosing not to have the millennial kingdom start in 70 ad why are you saying 500 years later well i came to this conclusion for a few different reasons quick refresher one is the book of enoch the book of enoch straight out says that there is an a week of apostasy following the destruction of the temple all right and then after that week, the Millennial Kingdom starts. So there's one clue right there. And it's a very good clue. 
either the Book of Enoch is all wrong, we need to throw that out, or it's correct. And number two, we see in the Greek Septuagint, as I have made a case in this, that there are 7,000 years of history and that there would be 500 years after Messiah. I go through uh, the Gospel of Nicodemus, the Book of Adam, and you know uh, all these different books. But then in the anticipation of the church fathers, I show several very, very, very early church fathers in the church. And I know they're just men, uh, but they all have the anticipation that in, within 500 years' time, Messiah would come and establish his kingdom. Now, what I find interesting about this, and I didn't discuss it before, is that when you look all through human history, most people have a very good understanding of where they're at in history. Before Messiah came the first time, it seemed like every like Messiah fever was in the air. Everybody knew the Messiah was coming. They knew it was that generation. It's kind of like today where everybody has this idea that we're in the end times again. There was this big reset happening and everybody knows it. I think that there's just a general idea of that. And it was the same thing there. I would argue that people believed that he was going to come within this time frame. All right. So also I, I want to make clear that 70 AD, and I'm going to be writing on this in the future. I've, I've started to come up with some ideas on this, but 70 AD was a judgment of Judea. Okay. 70 AD was not a judgment against the world. It was a judgment against the Yahudim and the whore of Babylon, which we have established in this group is Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. It was, it was a judgment on that, but the gospel still needed to go out into all the world. And there was a grace period where he was, he was Yahusha was having the gospel go out to India, to the UK, to Russia and Germany, all over. And then he brought in the harvest. That is why I'm saying 500 years needed to go by. All right. So we are once again on page 33, 500 years of the Phoenix. This is a continuation of talking about the church fathers. Let's begin. Discovering the role of the Phoenix in the 7,000-year timeline deception came by total accident. I was just sitting around by the poolside and skimming through the pages of the Apostolic Fathers, dipping on some iced tea or something, minding my own business, as always, when I happened upon a passing mention of the bird. Seriously, why doesn't anyone tell me this stuff? It's like everyone expects me to dig through the um, annals of history, or his story, and excavate for myself. It was Clement of Rome who let me in on the news. Here's what he has to say on it. So as you can see, this comes from chapter 24 of his book. Let us consider, beloved, how the master showeth to us continually the resurrection that is about to be, of which he hath made our Adonai, Jesus Christus, the first fruit, having raised him from the dead. Let us look, beloved, at the resurrection that is ever taking place. Day and night show to us the resurrection. The night is lulled to rest. The day ariseth, the day departeth, the night cometh on. Let us consider the fruits, in what way a grain of corn is sown. The sower goeth forth and casteth it into the ground. And when the, seed, when the seeds are cast into the ground, they that fall into the ground dry and naked are dissolved. Then after their dissolution... The mighty power of the providence of the Adonai raiseth them up, and from one seed many grow up and bring forth fruits. First Clement chapter 24. Pause. Only the untrained eye will fail to recognize the paradigm shift between Clement and the apostles who preceded him. 
the apostles, you see, constantly reminded their readers that Messiah, quote unquote, stood at the door and that the promise of his swift appearing were for them rather than others. Whereas Clement's quip regards, quote unquote, the resurrection that is about to be. The change in rhetoric relies upon the fact that Messiah had already fulfilled those promises to his generation, I believe. We are told Clement held office as the Bishop of Rome from 88 AD until his death in 99 AD. Otherwise, he's considered to be the first apostolic father of the church. If what is reported to us is true, then Clement lived in the wake of Yerushalayim's destruction in 70 AD. Yerushalayim is identified to us as Babylon, and Yehuda played the part of the whore, as I've already explained. And so, Revelation, for the most part, had been fulfilled. It is only the beast which had yet to be destroyed, from like chapters uh, 17, 18, 19 of Revelation. There is the tension. The question on everybody's mind then was how long they would have to wait for the kingdom of Messiah to be rolled in. 500 years, of course. But you knew that already. The last reset had already come and gone only two decades earlier. And so Clement was not expecting to see the next rollout in his lifetime. Continuing. Chapter 25. Let us consider the wonderful sign that happeneth in the region of the east, even about Arabia. There is a bird which is called the phoenix. This, being the only one of its kind, liveth for five hundred years. And when the time of its death draweth near, it maketh for himself a nest of frankincense and myrrh, and the other perfumes into which, when, it is, when its time is fulfilled, it entereth and then dieth. But as its flesh rotteth, a certain worm is produced, which, being nourished by the moisture of the dead animal, putteth forth feathers. Then, when it hath become strong, it taketh the nest wherein are the bones of its ancestor, and bearing them, it flieth from the region of Arabia to that of Egypt, to the city which is called Heliopolis. There in daytime, in the sight of all, it flieth up, and placeth them upon the altar of the sun, and having done so, returneth back. The priests, therefore, look into the registers of the times, and find that it has come at the completion of the five hundredth year. First Clement 25. Clement did it. He actually did it. I nearly fell out of my chair when reading about the phoenix, being an example, but also a sign of the resurrection to come, which may have been dangerous seeing as how I was seated near the edge of a pool and the no dive sign. According to legend, the Greeks and the Egyptians claimed the phoenix lived for 500 years. I actually checked this up and what he's saying is exactly true according to the ancients. Just before its life ex expired, the phoenix would build a nest and then set itself on fire. Then a new phoenix would rise from the ashes of the old. You will notice that Clement did not write off the bird as a fairy tale for children. No, the phoenix was a quote-unquote wonderful sign that happened in the regions of the east, namely Arabia. Also, the fact that only one phoenix lived at a time each in succession to the other, is undoubtedly important to the reset narrative. Its arrival heralded another intricate part of the timeline, probably in partnership with the Zodiac, seeing as how the sun plays a part. And it appears as though the elite all knew about it. 
According to Clement, a newly risen phoenix would be cause for the priest to look into the registers of the times and find that it, it has come at the completion of the 500th year. If this is true, then we can easily deduce knowing how 5,500 years had passed from Adam to Yahusha, that a possible 11 phoenixes had already come and gone, leaving only one more before the big event. Associating, uh, if you guys need caught up, we are on page 37 now. Associating frankincense and myrrh with the phoenix wasn't an accident either. The magi from the east have likely already been conjured in your thinking. If it hasn't, then perhaps I can be of assistance. I can only assume that's what Clement was going for. Long before the Magi arrived at Yosef and Miriam's doorstep, the frankincense and myrrh, along with the gold, had been passed down to the Magi through a successive number of ants, originating in Eden, or paradise. That's what First Adam and Eve tells us, anyways. So this comes from chapter 31 of First Adam and Eve. After these things, Elohim said to Adam, You asked me for something from the garden to be comforted therewith. And I have given you these three tokens as a consolation to you, that you trust in me and in my covenant with you. For I will come and save you, and kings shall bring me when in the flesh gold, incense, uh, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold as a token of my kingdom, incense or frankincense as a token of my divinity, and myrrh as a token of my suffering and of my death. Later on, a dying Adam would turn to his son, Seth, and recount the expected journey and purpose of the items of comfort, which Elohim had gifted to him from paradise. So follow along. This comes from 2 Adam and Eve, chapter 8. Then Adam let his blessing descend upon Seth, and upon his children, and upon all his children's children. He then turned to his son, Seth, and to Eve, his wife, and said to them, Preserve this gold, this incense, and this myrrh that Elohim has given us for a sign. For in days that are coming, a flood will overwhelm the whole creation. But those who shall go into the ark shall take with them the gold, the incense, and the myrrh, together with my body, and will lay the gold, the incense, and the myrrh with my body in the midst of the earth. Uh, they actually put him into uh, Zion. And... I, I believe the reference to the place of the skull is actually the place of Adam's skull, uh, just so everyone's aware, where the cross was put over it. Then after a long time, the city in which the gold, the incense, and the myrrh are found with my body shall be plundered. This is talking about Babylon coming in and destroying Jerusalem. But when it is spoiled, the gold, the incense, and the myrrh shall be taken care of with the spoil that is kept, and not of them shall perish until the word of Elohim Made, made man shall come, when kings shall take them and shall offer to him gold in token of his being king, incense in token of his being Elohim of heaven and earth, and myrrh in token of his passion, meaning his death. Gold also as a token of his overcoming Satan and all our foes. Incense as a token that he will rise from the dead and be exalted above things in heaven and things in the earth, and myrrh in token that he will drink bitter gall and feel the pains of Sheol from Hasatan. And now, O Seth, my son, behold, I have revealed unto thee hidden mysteries, not worthless mysteries, just hidden ones, which Elohim had revealed unto me. Keep my commandment for thyself 
and for thy people. The passing down of gold, frankincense, and myrrh from the garden signified the death, burial, and resurrection of Yahushua HaMashiach, as well as the promise of his kingdom, but also of Adam's resurrection, along with all the set apart confined to death when Yahushua entered Sheol at the bidding of Hasatan. How many years were there between Yahushua's breaking down the gates of Sheol to rescue Adam and the anticipated arrival of his kingdom? 500 years. And as you've been made well aware, that's the life cycle of a phoenix. And so here we have many uh, pretty looking pictures here of different phoenixes. I pulled off the internet. I was able to comb on a reconnaissance mission. It kind of makes one wonder why phoenix symbology is everywhere in a post-mud flood society. But even before that, it was a staple of Renaissance thinking. And even before that, in the Byzantine Empire and Rome and ancient Egypt. And then afterwards, it could be found among the fighting men of Napoleon Bonaparte and Alexander I. If Napoleon and Alexander I were combatants, we are told, then their 1812 Centennial Medal is rather odd, to say the least. The Phoenix is the, actually this would be 1912, but 1812, 1912. The Phoenix is the symbol most often associated with alchemy, the double-headed eagle was introduced in France as an emblem by the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry in the early 1760s. Point is, everyone emerged from the mud flood with a fondness for the phoenix. At least the elite did. It's almost like the elite knew something. Today, the phoenix is the symbol of Langley. Go figure. I'm sensing a theme here, but making these connections are probably none of my business. Anywho... I've included a picture of the CIA's emblem, but the CIA director, George H.W. Bush, Herbert Walker, who went on to become VP and then president, but long before that was seen standing outside of the book depository building, decided to photobomb it. The eagle is there behind them. You will have to take my word for it. Here we can even see that the phoenix is employed by the Vatican, and the Vatican is proof that Messiah's millennial kingdom hasn't happened yet. That's what I'm often told. It's simply not true, though. Messiah's millennial kingdom could very well have physically happened on earth, and the Vatican's present existence doesn't disprove it. All that really tells me is that so-and-so isn't interested in grabbing a shovel. Sometimes the best thing to do when it comes to discovering the truth is dig. Dig and dig and then keep right on digging. There's a reason why the beast has gone out of its way to bury it. If we're living in the season of Satan's deception, specifically the events within Revelation 20, I should say the short season, then you probably want to know where Rome was hiding. Well, Rome wasn't hiding. What I've been trying to say over and over again is that the fourth beast is long gone. It's been cast into the lake of fire with the rest of them, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, each in turn. But the beast still runs the world, does it not? Sure, last I checked, the prophecy of Daniel, however, was only concerned with the four beasts leading up to Messiah. Yahushua HaMashiach brought the fourth beast down. Rome fell. It was already thrown into the lake of fire long ago. It says so right here. This comes from Revelation 19.20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. You will tell me that Rome still exists, proving that the fourth beast has not yet been done away with. 
We'll get to that. First, let's reestablish the timeline. After the fourth beast was tossed into the lake of fire, we then see Satan in solitary confinement for the matter of a thousand years. So, Revelation 19.20. This is review for um, some of you, but um, I don't know why I put Revelation 19.20 when it's Revelation 20-whatever. But let's just run with it. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. How long is that little season? That's the question on everybody's mind. If I had to guess, I'd say 250 years, half of the bird's lifespan. The first 250 years would have likely been reserved for rebellion against the kingdom and the period advertised to us as the Renaissance, as well as preparation for his arrival. I've gone over this uh, rebellion in my other paper on the, uh, the wastelands of the Seraphim and a few others. Also, Hasatan may very well have a release date documented for us in the books. My hunch says July 4th, 1776. Independence Day. I know those are fighting words for some. The Illuminati were founded that very year. You shall perhaps see why I've begun to consider it hereafter. I've been digging some more and, wouldn't you know it, discovered something. A text. But not just any text. In the Book of the Two Pearls, there is a short section ascribed to Enoch. Or Hanok, and that's Enoch in English. For this reason, it is thusly called the Account of Enoch. Though Hanok presents only 10 short verses, what we are given is telling. The fourth beast returns. Also, the phoenix. Hopefully you caught that. If not, I'll repeat it again. Ready? The fourth beast returns, and something about the phoenix. It's the little details. You will ask me to verify the validity of two pearls, and you know I cannot possibly do that. Might as well ask me to verify the writings of Clement. In either case, it can't be done. Though at least we have a subject which Clement could agree upon. Here's what I do know. The translator worked from two surviving copies. One was Greek, the other Latin. The mere fact that we have the same account in two separate ancient languages is telling. He therefore, we don't actually have that with a lot of books, by the way, but we do with this one. He therefore transcribed the Greek and text into a literal rendering of English and quite separately the Latin. The following is both English versions combined into one smooth telling, and this is what we find. I'll be reading from the entire book of, or the, uh, the accounts of Enoch. Enoch was shown a vision of the coming deluge. Yahuwah said, my servants, Enoch, you must warn the wicked generation that I intend to keep my promise. I will destroy every creation in the land, for they have corrupted all that I have made. Enoch asked, Who will survive, my Adonai? Elohim said, I have chosen, I have a chosen vessel that will carry on the pure seed of righteousness. You will be taken before this great destruction comes. Warn the infidels. Enoch went on to, you could say, warn the pagans, I suppose, or warn the goyim. Enoch went on, went out to the multitude and said, Behold, Yahuwah is coming with 10,000 of his holy ones to mete out judgment to all those who are ungodly. 
you have sinned a grievous sin and forgotten the creator of the worlds. It's kind of interesting. I, I, I want to point out here that we often take this passage that who is coming with 10,000 of his holy ones. And the context here is that it's the flood, not a future tent, a future event. Kind of interesting. Just take note of that. Verse four, after he said this, the multitude took up arms to kill him. Suddenly, a whirlwind came from heaven as a storm of fire. Within the whirlwind of fire were seraphim, dragons of the power of Elohim. All who saw this became blind in that moment, for their eyes were burned from their sockets. It's like a, a scene straight out of um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I also want to point out here, because I don't talk about this in this article, I don't think, is that it straight out says that the seraphim angels are dragons. And I have shown that that is absolutely true. Enoch was then taken up into the heavens and disappeared from the land. No one knew where he went. He could not be found, for Elohim took him to an appointed place, even to a place of holy ground. In this place, Enoch wrote books about the history of his people from Adam until the time of this, his generation. And uh, where he went was, uh, was, I believe, Eden. He was taken up to paradise. At that time, Elohim showed him a vision of the great Leviathan and Behemoth. These two beasts were stirring up the population in the end of days. All right, so end of days, okay? Behemoth was a beast of liberty, and Leviathan was one of royalty and power. They began as one beast with a name called Phoenix. The Phoenix died, and from the ashes arose these two great beasts. Behemoth eventually became greater and dictated its laws to the whole earth. It attacked Ishmael continually, even when he did not deserve to be punished. Then another beast came up. It awoke from a slumber. The beast was a dragon-like beast with ten horns returning to reclaim its two severed heads, that is, Leviathan and Behemoth. The two beasts fought for a while but gave in afterwards. Now the dragon-like beast was again whole and it ruled the whole earth. It placed its seal upon the multitude until one like the Son of Man came and destroyed the beast. After this vision, Enoch was afraid and stricken with awe. It came to pass that Noah entered the ark and Elohim filled his will. Perhaps you nearly fell out of your chair as I did. For the record, I have never historically nor literally fallen out of my chair, but this is another one of those occasions where the action was nearly accomplished. Read verse 7 again and tell me that doesn't describe the United States of America and Great Britain. Who's punishing Ishmael continually today? Exactly, the beast of liberty is. That same behemoth, we are told, becomes the dominant power over the royal Leviathan. Behemoth and Leviathan. We will have to save the profound and pr practically untold reality of maritime laws and laws of the land for another time. But it is interesting to note, everyone, that uh, I've said this before, that the English language appears to be, in my opinion, to be a post-mud flood uh, part of the deception, part of the magic, the wizardry. There was the, the Welsh language, I believe, original English, that goes way back into the Millennial Kingdom, but English as a dominant language came about with this beast, and the first thing we see is this beast, uh, Britain and the United States fighting each other. Uh, 1776, all that stuff. I believe that was all a hoax, by the way. And uh, it was all the illusion of choice 
oh no, the British are are leaving. They lost the war. How how terrible. <laughs> never never mind the fact that we're still under the crown. The keyword in all of this is Phoenix. Again, I will direct you to verse seven. The Phoenix died, and from the ashes arose these two great beasts. In review, a Phoenix rising from the flames paints the picture of a fire, obviously, and an entity that was once destroyed but has now been revived. Notice what happens next. That is, after the two beasts are risen from the ashy flames of the Phoenix. Verse 8. The beast of old awakens from slumber. We are told precisely who that is when Enoch describes him as a dragon-like beast with ten horns returning to reclaim its two severed heads. That is Leviathan and Behemoth. In short, Satan is released from prison. Revelation 20. The lifespan of a phoenix is 500 years. All right? So if I could uh, throw this, what I think is going on here, and... I don't want to say that what we just read is gospel truth. I can't, I can't say that. Uh, but it is interesting that the phoenix arises first, and then Satan is released. So that's where I'm kind of, people want to know what the um, post-millennial kingdom timeline looks like. I kind of think it's 500 years. I think it's, we're looking at 500, 500, 500, 500, 500. There were two 500s for Millennial Kingdom, 500 for Rebellion. And at some point, it's, it's kind of like in the, in, I guess in the Enlightenment, you see all this big push to bringing the occults out and, you know, calling, heralding their master, Satan. And then I kind of think he appeared. I think he came. And um, so that's where I think we're at. Hopefully that clarifies things for people. Does That's all I'm going to read on this tonight before doing our lesson tonight on First Clement which I was obviously inspired by this. So does anybody have any thoughts, suggestions, questions on what we read tonight? There was actually a lot there in a very short time. Enlightenment, 1776, the English language, Britain, America, maritime law, law of the land, the Phoenix, nothing. All right. Well, <laughs> okay, I just asked a question. Why do you think 1776 over 1812? Obviously, I don't know when the mud flood event happened or the series of events, if it all happened at once. But I think we've all kind of, we're all looking at that, that year, right? 1812. It's the big year. Uh, the Napoleonic Wars and uh, Alex, uh, Alexander and all that. And I have come to the conclusion that the mud flood event was... Prop was created by Hasatan. Um, it could have been. It could have been his release from prison. You know what's really interesting? I'm not just a backtrack here. Is I want to do a, a a study on this, but I am becoming more and more convinced that the North Pole became frozen uh, due to the resurrection of the dead. And that's a whole. I mean, that that's like what. But you know, if you can if you can place the abyss there, a sheol there, all this stuff like they're, they're, that's really interesting, right? So telling us that the um, because when you look at the the old maps of the world that I believe are pre millennial kingdom, they show Antarctica still a tropical place, but the North Pole is frozen. So we know that when the maps were being made, 
after Yahusha, it was frozen by that point. The mud flood event, maybe it was the release of the angels. I don't know. I think that it was um, it was Satan mimicking the flood. And, you know, the earth basically swallowed it up. One of the we we know that Satan can mimic a flood. We see that in Jasher, where Abraham is taking Yitchak to Zion to for the sacrifice, and the the floodwaters come and it's really Hasatan. But we also know that Yahuwah promised that he would never destroy the world again with a flood. From now on, fire was his order of business. Therefore, when we see these floods like this, um, I I think that it's maybe. It's not Yahuwah doing it. This would be Hasatan doing this. So what you could say is, is that he was already released before this point. And this is just a theory. I, I could go back on this, but that he actually did it to erase the kingdom, to scrub it, right? To, it was his purposeful reset, right? And it was a big reprogramming of it. The best way to reprogram everybody was just to do this worldwide event, kill a bunch of people, bury buildings, have people dig it out, you know, dig out the streets again, reprogram everybody, one mass events. I think that's what we're looking at. So uh, I talk about 1776 because it's interesting if you could relate the United States of America to the beast, and I do. It's uh, it's interesting because we're celebrating the birth date of independence. And in very Orwellian terms, it may be uh, independence from the kingdom, right? We're finally free from it. Um, and that may be a stretch for some, but it's something I am looking at. It's not gospel truth for me. Everyone's very quiet tonight. I am going to move on to my Clements. Please, please do. Um, so when you were talking about the maritime law, do you think that that's probably like when all of the information started kind of, kind of coming in of the English language to kind of corrupt our, like our court systems and stuff as well? Because we know that in law that a lot of our uh, information that we have doesn't mean what we think it means. So do you think that that was kind of like around the same time uh, that the maritime law that came in to corrupt the kind of the court system as well? Yeah, I think so. I, so to reiterate here, what do we see when the millennial kingdom came to an end, the explosive birth of the English language? The English language is, here I am speaking English, is what I know, we all know English. I think it's a cursed language. You know, you, you look at the Hebrew language, it's it's like every single word is purposeful. And it's not just the Hebrew language, the Aramaic, all these other languages, they're, they're all very, very, very purposeful. The English language is a mishmash of everything. And you have words that have double meanings where they could hide things. You know, they, they, it, in Orwellian terms, they'll tell you one thing, but it means another. And so think of all the ways that we, we maybe put curses on people. Like uh, you say, good morning. To us, it means it's the sun has risen. And we say it is a good sunrise, but we're, you know, morning, like morning of death, right? Good morning. Or um, you uh, spell words. You're putting a spell on somebody, right? You write in cursive. You know, you're putting a curse on somebody. It, but it, it, those are just basics. And it goes on and on and on and on. And it's, it's never ending. And it's just like, oh, my goodness. You start looking at all the ways that we speak. And, you know, words are important, right? What we say is important. Um, we, we push energy out. People receive energy. And we curse people with our words. So there, there is something about English that it's, it's, a, 
I, I believe that, you know, you can trace back um, the, the Welsh language, which I think is um, pre-Millennial Kingdom. You look at the Welsh language, which the, the Arthurian legends were written in, for example, the, the Pearl and Le Morte de Arthur. No, actually, Le Morte de Arthur was French, but the Pearl was written in Welsh. Uh, point is, is that I think that they took this and they they just they took an insignificant backwater language and they made it something very significant. Actually, now that I think about it, um, I'm actually researching on how Britain may have been the first country to massively, massively convert to the religion of Messiah. Uh, as early as 40 AD, 40 to 50 AD. So maybe it was a, a revenge tactic. I don't know. Because um, they would have spoken in different di uh, dialects that are no longer exist, but also Welsh. Um, and so, yes, the the maritime laws, I believe, that came into it as well at that time. And the interesting thing about Satan as our accuser is that he has to give us an out. And I'm not going to go through all of that in this recording because I will get in trouble and I'll get my video shut down. Uh, but, yes... The, the obviously the court systems are very corrupt and we are all sold into slavery in very abstract terms. We all live on the plantation, right? And all of us can choose to walk off the plantation. Every single one of us. Nobody has to remain a slave. I believe that Hasatan, uh, he has to give everybody an, an out. If he doesn't give us an out, then he can't accuse us. That's why, for example, you look at who runs the world, guys. Rome runs the world. What is Rome holding closest to their bosom? They're holding the Bible. They're holding the truth closest to them, and they're lying about just everything, right? Um, and it's the same thing with, um, with Torah. You open up your Bible. What's the first five books you come across? The Instructions in Righteous Living. And then you have you know, the, the church telling us to be disobedient to it. Well, this is the thing about Satan is that he, you know, people say, oh yeah, the whole Bible was made up by, you know, Jesuits and all this kind of stuff. It's like, wait a second here, wait a second. There's a reason why Satan has to deliver us the Bible because he can't accuse us if he doesn't give us the truth. He gives us the truth and then he can make up evolution. He could make Genesis look stupid. He can make the Torah look stupid. He could lie about all this stuff. He does a great job at it, but, you know, he can't accuse otherwise. I, I went on a tangent there, but yeah, that's that's what I th think about the the maritime laws um, and the laws of the land and how it was all part of. I think it's all part of the mud flood deception. Yes, but don't you find it really interesting though that like most of the world is adopting like the the English language that it's kind of like the language to to aspire to like in all these other countries it becomes like the second language in, in that it's almost becoming like Babylon where it's becoming like the one, one main language again in our society. I have very rarely gone anywhere in the world where English was not spoken. When I was a teenager, I would go to, I went to East Africa. I lived there for three months when I was 16. I went there twice and, um, uh, Go to the Maasai tribes, the Dorobo tribes, the Chaga tribes, every single one of them, almost every single one of them, they all spoke English. And yeah, you know what? I'm going to go off on this tangent really that's, quickly. That's amazing, though. Like, don't, don't you find that ironic? No, I don't find it. Well, I don't find it uh, ironic. I, I, 
find it to be, um, you know, 200 years ago, that wasn't the case, right? So it's been in the last 200 years when this has happened. Partly, it's the British Empire had a huge part to play in that. You know, there was the saying, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Because literally, the sun was always in its circuit, always looking down at some point in time on the British Empire. They were everywhere. India, Kenya... You know, Australia, you name it, they were there, right? So they're, yeah, they're a part of the end time deception. One of the big things in Tartarian research is how the, the modern day British have hijacked British history. That whatever British history truly was, it's not what they say it was. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, everything's been hijacked with English. I will go off on a little tangent here since I have you guys' attention. I believe this is one of the greatest proofs for the seventh day Sabbath being on the day that we call Saturday. Now, what I get told a lot is that because I uh, worship Yah on Saturday, that I am worshiping Saturn. Never mind the fact that the lunar Sabbath happens to land on any day of the week, which, you know, it's like, well, who are you worshiping this week? Thor, uh, Frida, you know, who is it, right? Um, and... The thing is, is that when you go, that's only an English thing. It's English, even though Saturday is actually not English. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't understand this for years. I remember when I came to Torah, and I would hear Rob Skiba talk about how every single major language in the world, from all these different countries, the seventh day of the week, what we call Saturday, and I have to specify that, Saturday, they all fall in agreement that they call it some form of Sabbath, meaning that you, it, like literally from the Hebrew, Sabbath, meaning seven, a cycle of seven, 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 seven. You don't break it. You don't, you don't you ever break it. Seven, seven, seven. You don't go, oh, you know, a non-day, two days, and then another seven. And I couldn't understand that. The, the explanation at the time was that when Israel was removed from the land, uh, that they went into all the worlds and they started changing the language. Well, that didn't make sense to me because, first of all, Israel was divorced and removed from the land for not keeping the Sabbaths. So it's a little strange that they would be removed and then start keeping it. And it would also be a little strange that they had the power to, after being conquered by the Assyrians, to be able to go all over the world and uh, get the governments to change the language. So we look at how the calendar was corrupted under Rome. I have... I, I, I totally agree with that. The calendar was corrupted. It's overemphasized. Uh, it's not nearly, I think, as corrupted as it's made out. But yes, it was corrupted. And whatever happened in the Millennial Kingdom, guys, it was, it was corrected. It was course corrected. And finally, it hit me one day, and I'm looking and going, oh my goodness, every single language, but English, every single language, they talk about the Sabbath day on the same day. They're all in agreement. It's because all these different languages all around the world, they were celebrating Sabbath, guys. It wasn't just Israel that was removed from land. It was, well, you know, they were, Israel was everywhere, but this was Tartaria. This was the greater kingdom. They were celebrating Sabbath every seven, 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 seven days. They were able to count on their fingers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It was that easy. Um... That was one thing that I, 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 I throw out there to the crowd that disappear, uh, disagrees with me on Sabbath, and I, I don't hear anything back from them on that because I think, I think it's pretty rock solid. Um, there's no other explanation that I've, I've come across. So, all right. Thank you for... I think I think <laughs> question you bring on that. Sorry. 
kind yeah, of hawking everything. Um, so, but if, if they were like doing seven, seven, seven of the, the Sabbaths every year, like why would Hasatan ever want us to celebrate, you know, uh, our Shabbats on the actual real day? Like you think that he would have corrupted that. And I'm not saying either way. I mean, I do keep the seventh day Shabbat, which is Saturday for me because I don't know, but I've really looked into it and have studied all the calendars and stuff and and I, and I get what you're saying about through all the languages that it has like their own um, uh, seventh day of their language that they keep celebrating that. I guess where I get confused just with the whole calendar thing, you know, because I know everybody's got their own kind of calendar stuff. But why would Hasatan ever want us to even celebrate on the true Shabbat day? Well, I don't. Well, he doesn't. But as I pointed out, is that. Uh, Hasatan has to give us the truth. He has to. He, he he's the accuser. It's a courtroom title. You you he has to in order to be in that courtroom title. You still have to jump through hoops. You have to, you know, you have to go into the court in front of the judge, and you have to go through protocol. And so, if Hasatan he knows the best, his best weapon is to give us the truth and then lie about it. For example. We all have Genesis. We all know what it says about the earth is flat, motionless, firmament, right? Uh, it wasn't created through evolution, monkeys, you know, go through all that, right? And yet you talk to the average Christian, and they don't believe anything the Bible says because they've been lied to about it. So he gives us the truth. He lies to us and says, don't do that. You know what it says here about the Sabbath? Don't, don't do that Sabbath. You know, I, you know how many Christians I talk to? And they are big pastors, just anyone who's slightly educated. And you talk to them about the Sabbath issue, they all know that Sunday comes from Rome. From Rome. They all claim, oh, yeah, it's, you know, the ecumenical movement is evil and all these churches coming together. I'm like, no, you're already connected with Rome. You're already there. You've never left Rome because you're still keeping Rome's day and you know it. This is what Satan does. He gives us the truth and then lies to us. Yes, so no, he does not want us keeping his uh, Yah's uh, holy days. Um, but um, he can't. But if we're in ignorance and we truly don't know the day, then we're actually, we're given an out, really. I mean, we can go to, we can go to Yah and go like, I'm sorry, I tried, but I, it was so confusing. I didn't know. Um, and that's how. I think how like the calendar issue is made out. It's like made out to be so confusing. I really don't think it is that confusing. Um, I, I think we overcomplicate everything. So. I agree. I think you answered that really well. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. As, as Josh just said in the comment, uh, the only way you can judge someone for breaking the law is if they know what the law is, right? Or else they are ignorant can't go saying you broke the law when you did this, but we're never informed it was bad. Are you guilty? And I'd say no, I agree with that.